Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning, everybody. Jim Douglas uh, sitting in today on Vermont Viewpoint. Thanks for joining us. Uh, an exciting day, to uh, put it mildly, given the weather emergency that we're experiencing. A lot of folks having a sense of deja vu um, um, thinking back to what happened a dozen years ago, or some of us are old enough to remember the uh, flooding of downtown Montpelier in March of 1992. Uh, it wasn't as widespread as it uh, has been uh, this time or, or in 2011, but it was still uh, pretty dramatic for our capital city. And um, we'll certainly have updates uh, from time to time here as... Uh, as we go through the morning, uh, our good friend Lee Cattell is monitoring the situation uh, around the state, and and uh, we urge everyone to log on to WDEVRadio.com uh, or um, a television station website just to get the latest information on what roads are open or closed or what information might be uh, might be important to to you. Uh, the advice I think uh, everyone is taking and uh, and offering is get to higher ground. Um, and uh, don't go through uh, water that's over a road, and uh, uh, things should begin to subside here fairly soon. Anyway, uh, uh, we got a great show today. Art Wolf is our first guest. Uh, Art is, of course, a retired uh, associate professor of economics at the University of Vermont. He was our state economist at one point, and uh, we'll get a perspective on the uh, economy both uh, here and, and beyond. At 9.30, Hanson Tebbets is going to be here. Uh, he is, of course, the Secretary of Agriculture, and I'd hope to talk about um, a variety of agricultural issues. Uh, we'll certainly want to get his take on the flooding and how that's affected our, our farm community. At 10 o'clock, Russell Flannery will join us. Russell is a, uh, an interesting fellow who grew up in Rutland uh, but spent uh, most of his career in China. Uh, he was the uh, uh, Asia editor for Forbes Media and uh, still an editor-at-large uh, for the uh, uh, magazine and its related uh, media outlets. Uh, he's back back home, um, still working, uh, writing and editing, um, but based, uh, based in his home city of Rutland. So we'll have a great uh, opportunity to get his perspective on world affairs. And at 10.30, Owen Foster will be here. He's the chairman of the Green Mountain Care Board. That's the uh, state uh, regulatory body that is responsible for uh, overseeing hospital budgets and uh, insurance premiums. Uh, we'll have a chance to talk with uh, Chairman uh, Foster about the cost of health care and where that's going and uh, and what we might expect um, uh, in the near and, and longer term. So jam-packed show this morning, some great guests, and we'll kick it off with Art Wolf, our good friend from uh, from uh, Chittenden County, uh, retired uh, economics professor and uh, observer of all things economic. Art, welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you, Jim. It's good to be here. Well, uh, I, I guess uh, we should start with uh, the event that we're all experiencing. And uh, any perspective on what kind of what a natural disaster might do to the state's economy? We had one a dozen years ago, of course, and uh, and some uh, earlier in our history. But is there a an economic impact um, uh, from a flood of this kind? Well, if we start at the kind of the big picture. 20,000-foot level, uh, if you look back in the statistics, uh, you really can't see Irene in, in the employment statistics or the, the government tax revenue statistics or anything like that. 
So, um, you know, fortunately our economy is very dynamic, it's big, um, and, uh, you know, we do recover from these things, even from major uh, major weather and other disasters. But if you start going down to, you know, a, a lower level, obviously um, it has tremendous impacts on local economies, local businesses, uh, Businesses can't open. The workers can't get there. Their customers can't get there. They have uh, major cleanup expenses, as as do just regular people, not just businesses. So there there are lots of costs to individuals and the businesses that um, are are significant. Um, fortunately, the or depending on your perspective, but you know the federal government does have disaster relief money. Um, going back even farther than what you were talking about, 1927. Uh, the great flood that uh, none of us were around for, but some of us have read about. Um, there was no federal emergency management relief. Uh, it was all pretty much you, you do what you can with local and state resources. That's what Vermont did. Uh, that's what happened in the same year. There was a big flood in the Mississippi River, which is even more dramatic than the Vermont flood. Um, so, uh, you know, the governor has requested that an emergency, uh, a federal disaster designation. I think yesterday um, President Biden uh, approved that. So fortunately, those local cost individuals and businesses, maybe not all of them, but probably a large percent of them, and also for, for local governments, um, those will be covered by the federal government. Well, we're, we're chatting with Art Wolf, uh, economist, and you mentioned 1927. Our uh, local uh, hero, Calvin Coolidge, was in the White House at the time, and he was uh, quite clear that he did not believe the federal government should be involved, that it ought to be a state and local responsibility, and a private one. Uh, the, the American Red Cross was very active in uh, uh, generating support and, and providing uh, help to those um, who were affected by the flood. But uh, uh, you're right, uh, Art, it was a very different landscape in terms of, of um, uh, relief uh, funds at that point. And uh, somebody said at the time of the Irene experience a dozen years ago that uh, uh, if you're in the construction trades, it, it uh, ended up being positive, unfortunately, from everybody's tragedy because there was a lot of reconstruction work uh, to be done, uh, excavating and building roads and repairing homes and, and other buildings. But, but uh, the first job is obviously to provide relief and... Um, We'll hope that we'll bounce back as we did again. So I appreciate your perspective on uh, on that. Uh, let me ask you about the national economy. We, we hear about it every day in the news. We hear uh, about the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, pausing at its most recent meeting, of course, uh, trying to get the, that uh, inflation rate down to 2%. Uh, still a ways to go, but I think it's, what, 37 last time I saw um, um, there, there's always talk about uh, maybe a recession is around the corner, maybe not, maybe we'll have a soft landing. Um, I won't hold you to it, but uh, but what do you think? Well, as the great philosopher Yogi Berra once said, uh, you know, making predictions is really hard, especially about the future. Um, so uh, I actually last year uh, was pretty sure that uh, there was going to be a recession by next summer, which is today, um, and I was wrong. Uh, we are not in a recession. At least I don't think so. Most people don't think so. Um, but the economy is definitely slowing down. We, we see it in, in a lot of areas. Uh, the, main, the main 
way we look, most people look at the economy is through the unemployment rate, and if you just looked at the unemployment rate, <clears throat> there seems to be nothing to worry about. The unemployment rate in the United States is 3.7%, about where it was before the, we had the COVID recession. Now, Vermont's unemployment rate is just a little over 2%. If not at a record low, it's pretty darn close to a record low. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think it's, it's possible that we, we can skate by with just some slow economic growth uh, the rest of this year. Uh, but it's also possible that um, you know, we're gonna, we will go into recession. The Fed has announced that they're going to keep raising interest rates until they get inflation down from where it is now, which is actually a little over 4%, 4.5%. And they want to get that down to 2 So So that's still a long way to go. We're we're down from the peak. And I'll I'll just use the measure the Fed uses. We don't have to talk about the details. But but it was up to 5.5% last summer. Now it's down to 4.5%. Both of those are still very high by the standard of the last 30 years or so. Yeah, uh, I guess it's all relative. And and speaking of relativity, what about the rest of the world? Uh, Some of the other uh, developed economies are are in not quite as good shape as we. Does that have an impact on on the American economy? Oh, yeah. We we are, just like Vermont's tied into the U.S. economy, the U.S. economy is tied into the rest of the economy, the rest of the economies in the world, and um, they're all slowing down. All the central banks in, in the world are raising interest rates to try to get their inflation down. It's not just the U.S. phenomenon. And um, that means slow growth, and what slow growth means is, if not a recession, it just means wages grow slower. It's harder to find a, a job that you like or you want, a better job, harder to get a, a raise. Um, so those are all indications of, of a slowing economy, and, and it is worldwide, and you layer on that things like a war in Europe, um, you know, that's not good. Well, clearly uh, uh, Ukraine is suffering tremendously, and it has an impact because it's the breadbasket of, if not Europe, uh, other parts of the world too, and uh, uh, has an, an impact on food supplies and and. Uh, uh, there's always a ripple effect when something like that occurs. There's no uh, no doubt about it. Um, we're chatting with Art Wolf, a retired professor of economics at the University of Vermont, uh, uh, state economist. Once upon a time, that's uh, that was a while ago, I guess, Art. But uh, um, we really appreciate your perspective this morning. And Art, uh, we've chatted about the uh, national situation, the impact of uh, flooding. Uh, I want to focus more on the Vermont economy and and uh, what's going on here. Uh, as you pointed out, we're 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 not an island. Uh, no pun intended. During a flood, <laughs> uh, we're tied into the national and world economy. Uh, our unemployment rate is very low here, uh, almost a record low. And um, I, I'm interested in your perspective generally on how the Vermont economy is doing. Uh, at this point, as we uh, as we uh, look to uh, a new fiscal year that just began a week ago. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of the fiscal situation, uh, it's doing pretty well. There are some indications of some weakening in some of the tax revenues, uh, but the, the state, and like most other states, has benefited tremendously from uh, all the money the federal government has been spending since the COVID uh recession and, and afterwards, uh, those have longer-term consequences for, for budgets and uh, at the national level and also in Vermont. It, the question I, I think we don't really have a good answer for is how much of the increase in spending over the last three or four years that we've had in Vermont um, 
is going to be essentially built into the, the baseline needs of the of the state budget and how much of it is just used for one-time expenditures, which it should have been, because if it if it leads to ongoing spending, then we're going to have to raise taxes, and um, that's going to be problematic. Given that our our state economy is is growing slowly, and just a, a few numbers again, the the unemployment rate is low, but um, we still in Vermont do not have as many people working. Um, as we did before COVID, and I'm not sure there's any other states that's true for them. It might be two or three, um, but we are doing much worse than just about any other state in the nation in terms of the recovery, um, in terms of jobs. And we all know that every employer in the state is looking for people. Um, our labor force is way down. We knew that was going on for the last five or ten years, but it, it's down a lot. Um, there are people that have simply vanished from uh, the job market, apparently. And we don't really know where they are. Some of them have retired. But, um, so that doesn't bode well for long-term growth of state uh, revenues. And, of course, you can't spend money that you don't have. And so the, the, we really need to, to, to work on the economic activity side to, to generate jobs and economic activity, economic growth. Seems like workforce is uh, without having to raise. Yeah, you mentioned workforce. I I just happened to look back because I was curious uh, about the uh, size of our workforce in 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 the recent past. And um, when I left office, uh, we had about 359,000 people in the workforce. And uh, over the next um, half dozen years, we lost about 20,000. It's recovered a little bit, but it's still smaller than it was uh, a dozen years ago, uh, to your point. And and given the uh, uh, continued decline in the number of high school graduates, the lowest birth rate in history, um, uh, it's not uh, it's not a pretty picture, is it? Uh, and we, we've had a few foreigners immigrate to Vermont, but not that many. Uh, we've still got, I assume, uh, after a, a brief COVID bump, uh, net out migration domestically. So, uh, I don't know. Got any advice for policymakers? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, one advice would be um, see if you can get uh, people to have more babies <laughs> and also to stop dying. Uh, those are pretty hard to do. <laughs> but if you look at Vermont, yes, we have one of the lowest birth rates in the country. Um, in fact, for the last couple of years, more people have been dying in Vermont than have been born. Um, and that probably will continue given the aging of the baby boomer generation. Uh, we don't know as much about people moving into Vermont versus out. There seems to have been a, a, a people moving in during the COVID uh, crisis in 2020, maybe 2021. But whether or not those people were permanent or just temporary migrants, leaving big cities because they were afraid of, of COVID, um, that remains to be seen. We, we don't really know what's going on and probably won't know until 2030 when the census comes out because uh, we all we have now are our estimates, and the estimates are based on what happened in the recent past. So we don't know if that, that recent past was permanent or temporary. We're chatting with economist Art Wolf uh, about the economic prospects for Vermont and, and the country. Um, Art, uh, uh, you touched on fiscal matters uh, a couple of minutes ago, and um, we uh, were seeing a softening of the personal income tax. The legislature just imposed a new tax, a payroll tax, to pay for a child care program. Uh, they raised um, uh, fees on motor vehicle 
registrations and, and license renewals by about 20 percent, despite the fact that the governor says we don't really need the money. Um, so, oh, and housing costs are, are quite high here, as we all know, if, if you can find a place to live. So uh, are we just seeing an exacerbation of the cost of living that, that is playing in to this uh, challenge of recruiting people to come here? Well, um, you know, there, there, the, uh, the housing issue is, seems to be a problem just about everywhere in the country except in very rural areas where people don't want to live, you know, the middle of Kansas, um, places like that. E- even in Vermont's rural areas, <clears throat> there, there are still problems. Uh, in terms of getting getting people to live there, so housing prices outside of the ski areas and those kind of places, housing prices probably have not increased as much as elsewhere. But um, to the extent that that public policy can reduce certain costs, that will make Vermont a more attractive place to live. Housing costs is one of them. Um, I just <clears throat> off the top of my head, things like grocery costs. Um, how do you get grocery bills lower? And the answer is more competition. For example, there's only one Walmart in Vermont that is allowed to have a grocery store attached to it. Um, and uh, Walmart has provided tremendous competition all over the country to grocery stores to keep food prices from going up. We don't have that in Vermont. So simple regulatory changes, uh, not just to make it easier to build houses, but make it easier to sell things um, and in- inject more competition in the economy, that will help to uh, lower the cost of living here for everybody, including people that live here and people that are thinking of moving here. Not rocket science, is it? Uh, uh, co- competition uh, lowers prices, and we all like to buy local, but uh, there's a cost to that, and, and uh, um, some of this uh, competitive pressure certainly would be positive for the uh, for the local uh, uh, local economy and the household budget. Are there other steps uh, we could take? We, we just uh, saw a big uh, announcement about uh, extending broadband in certain areas that didn't have it before. I, I assume that uh, that's helpful. Yeah, uh, and again, anything that makes the state a more attractive place to live, uh, and especially in rural areas where they really would like to have more population, um, lack of broadband is, is uh, a big detriment to, to doing that. So, uh, so yeah, how, how do we do that? And, you know, there's lots of different ways uh, to do that. I think we, we need to focus, and we're beginning to focus on regulatory policy, With everybody is now talking about making it easier to build certain types of houses uh, in certain areas, and, and that's one step. But what about making it easier to put up a cell phone tower, making it easier to do other things? In fact, we were talking about uh, Irene a few minutes ago, and you remember one reason we were able to recover from Irene so quickly is because we waived environmental regulations. And as you said, every excavator in the state was in, in the middle of a river digging out uh, gravel to use to repair roads. Well, in a normal state of affairs, you, you couldn't do that even if you, you tried to go through the regulatory process. So I'm, I'm not saying we should dig up every river in Vermont, but we should take that as a lesson that certain regulations at certain times are counterproductive to having a, a, a good, healthy economy, and we need to investigate which regulations are really not serving us well. 
I recall after Irene, uh, even down in East Middlebury near where I live, that uh, suspending some of those regulations allowed a much faster cleanup, and things seemed to have gone quite well. I was hoping naively that might be a, a <laughs> an indication of a permanent relaxation, but uh, maybe that's too much to ask. But just got a, a couple minutes left, Art, but I, I wanted to go back to the workforce issue because it's always intrigued me. Um, b- people want to be paid more because their own personal expenses are rising, and we understand that, um, and we want people to, to be paid uh, a decent wage in Vermont. But I often said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure we're all going to want to pay ten bucks for a Big Mac. So, so what, what's the? How do we resolve these pressures of of trying to increase um, compensation for our friends and neighbors, but still not um, uh, price the cost of living out of uh, out of somebody's ability to pay? Well, the, the way you, you raise the people's real standard of living is, is by, by allowing workers to become more productive. So think about grocery store workers. If we still had uh, every, every grocery store working worker, uh, cashier working at a cash register with no scanners and punching in or typing in the number, the price of every product that you put on the belt, you know that would take a long time. We need more cash registers, more people, and, uh, you know, that's, that's not a way to have good economic growth. Uh, we have productivity. The grocery stores and supermarkets can pay their, their employees more because they're more productive. So, so productivity is really the key. So, so um, again, don't put barriers in the way of increasing worker productivity. Uh, you know, Oregon and New Jersey don't allow people to pump their own gas, so gas prices are higher. Uh, it does create more jobs, but that's not the goal. The goal isn't more jobs. The goal is higher wages. So automation is uh, is really what we're going to see more of. Uh, it's uh, tougher for some of us uh, <clears throat> baby boomers, perhaps. But uh, you're right. We're going to have to learn to scan and uh, do more transactions without uh, without interacting with humans, I guess, and so that the ones who still are on the payroll can be be better paid. Bart, we're about out of time. Uh, it, it does fly, and I want to thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning and uh, giving us a great perspective on the uh, state economy and, and the economy beyond Vermont. Um, I, I hope we'll have the chance to chat again, and uh, uh, hope you'll stay on higher ground uh, so that um, uh, that you and, and your family stay safe. Art Wolf, thanks so much for being here. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you, Lee, for that uh, update. Um, I uh, took a detour to get to the luxurious studios of WDEV uh, myself this morning, and um, the Richmond uh, interchange is underwater. Um, the park and ride is uh, is uh, um, uh, a real problem. There are a couple of cars there that are partially submerged. The mobile station is not accessible. It's a real uh, real mess there at uh, exit 11 so we hope things uh, improve there and you can have that reopening and an announcement in the not too distant future um, we're going to talk uh, agriculture uh, this this time with our good friend Anson Tebbets and Anson uh, welcome back to the microphones of WDEV uh, good morning governor it's, a, it's certainly a difficult morning for Vermont and all our neighbors well, it certainly is, uh, and um, uh, we're, I certainly want to talk about all the uh, aspects of uh, your beat, but uh, we ought to start with what's going on, Anson. Um, uh, give us an update on 
how the agriculture sector is faring in light of the storm that we're experiencing today? Well, our, our main focus continues to be uh, life and safety, um, the state response, uh, working with emergency management. Um, uh, we're still not out of this uh, by any means because uh, we may have a lull in certain parts of, of Vermont, uh, but there's some areas that are still at risk. Um, uh, there's going to be a, a tapering off, I think, of the, of the weather, uh, but we're keeping an eye on the weather for uh, later in the week as well. As far as the, you know, some of the issues that we're facing in agriculture right now, um, both on the farm and also in some of our processing plants, um, as you mentioned and Lee mentioned it, you've been talking about sort of the infrastructure that it's been heavily damaged. Our road system, with many roads being closed, uh, many farms on the back roads. So there's going to be a disruption of picking up, for example, milk at farms. Um, some of the trucks can't get to the farms to pick up the milk. As many of you know, uh, cows, goats, sheep need to be milked uh, twice a day. Um, so the cows continue to be milked, but the milk may not be able to be picked up. Uh, and there's not enough storage on the farm. Um, so there may be some instances where their milk will have to be uh, dumped and not get to the processing plant. We've also got some processing plants that are uh, facing some issues with some boil water orders, so they're not running. And we also have a number of employees that just simply cannot get to these uh, these plants to do the work. So that's a that's another element of it. And on top of that, of course, we have a tremendous uh, crop loss that really hasn't had a chance to be evaluated, uh, whether it's uh, hay or corn or uh you know, even, uh, you know, bees and beehives have been underwater. So we've got a lot of issues ahead of us. Uh, but right now it's all about life and safety and uh, manage to get through uh, the next uh, few days and, and get on to the recovery, which will be a very long recovery for sure. We're chatting with uh, Vermont's Agriculture Secretary Anson Tebbets about the impact on our farm community of, uh, of this uh, dramatic weather event. Anson, any uh, reports of uh, either losses of livestock or structures? Uh, have not heard of any uh, loss uh, as of yet. That does not mean it has not occurred. Uh, you know, yesterday afternoon it really took a turn. I'm, I'm coming to you from uh, Cabot. Uh, I'm on the hill here in Cabot, and things were they were they were doing okay. The headwaters of the Winooski big began in Cabot, um, so it you know just. Uh, it was it was calm, uh, but it began to turn about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, um, and it really it just rained all uh, night long in my region. And of course, that rain has to go somewhere, and the water has to go somewhere. So it's all going downhill uh, into the village of Cabot. So there's considerable damage, uh, I believe, in the village of Cabot. And as you follow down through uh, Marshfield, Plainfield, East Montpelier, and of course. Uh, Montpelier is uh, really in trouble. Uh, Barry's really in trouble. And I think there's going to be some issues as we work our way through, uh, as the Winooski gets bigger through, um, you know, through Waterbury into Richmond and out into Lake Champlain. So I think we still have a long way to go here. And of course, we're keeping an eye on what's happening with the, with the Wright Sail Dam and uh, the people being put on notice there. But uh, I think there's a lull here. It's not raining here now which is good, but that does not mean it's over because that water is still rushing and it's still going places. Well, there's obviously a lag uh, after an experience like this. Uh, uh, I drove uh, upriver a little bit uh, this morning from 
from Williston to Waterbury, and the, the river is uh, obviously very high and over its banks and in a number of areas. So um, uh, you're exactly right. We're not out of this yet. There are a lot of comparisons, Anson, to what happened a dozen years ago with uh, Tropical Storm Irene. Uh, what? Uh, how would you compare the two based on what you've seen so far? Well, one comparison is, you know, that that event, the actual, you know, the serious event was uh, rather quickly compared to this one. That was, you know, it was 24 hours. I, if I remember correctly, the sun came out, it got hot. Uh, and the recovery began immediately. This one is so different, uh, and I think I think it's going to be a bigger event because I think more communities are also going to be impacted by this, and the duration is just uh, is so long. Um, it, you know, it, it, it we're not out of it yet, and it seems like we're on. I don't know, we on day two or three here, and and so we may have a lull here, and then I think there's a little bit of concern of what may be coming uh, Thursday or Friday, so we can't get to that recovery. But as we do, and as we did it, you know, Irene, we're going to get through this. Uh, there's going to be a lot of hurt. There's going to be a lot of destruction. There's going to be a lot of fear. Uh, but somehow we're going to rally and figure this out, uh, and that's going to come. But right now I think all of us are just trying to put one foot in front of the other uh, and, you know, try to communicate with each other, take care of our neighbors, and our local communities are doing just an incredible job. Uh, the state response, we're trying to stay on top of it. Uh, it's so rapid this time. So a lot of comparisons to Irene, but I think when, the, when it's all over, uh, we're going to be we're going to be past what we ha- what happened in Irene. Um, I just get that. That's my gut feeling. Yeah. Well, and there was a report that the uh, uh, high point of the Winooski River in Montpelier was a couple inches higher than it was in 2011, so your instinct may be, uh, may be accurate. Um, uh, we've had reports this morning of uh, some folks uh, um, starting to get, out, get their crews out there where the waters are receding and dive right in and, and begin to repair roads, which uh, uh, is the way Vermonters respond. And the Waterbury Town Manager was on the air here at WDEV earlier uh, um, announcing that there will be some uh, dumpsters that the town is going to be making available to residents in uh, areas that have been uh, uh, affected in the village. So uh, you're right. Vermonters pitch in. They help their neighbors, and uh, we'll we'll get through this um, as we did before. We're chatting with Anson Tebbets, our Secretary of Agriculture, and uh, Anson, uh, um, <laughs> seems like when it rains, it pours. No, no pun intended. Uh, but we had a an ice event um, or, or mm-hmm. a, a freeze event that affected our orchards uh, just a couple of months ago. Uh, fill us in on on that. Yeah, this was the uh, this was the May weather event, and it was uh, in the middle of May, um, and uh, we had just a a significant cold snap um, with temperatures getting down into the 20s in many regions, and at that time uh, the apple blossoms were in bloom. Uh, blueberries were getting underway. Strawberries, uh, our grapes, our you know tender vines on the grapes uh, were at, at risk. So a lot of damage was done. Um, we're thinking some of the surveys that's been done through USDA and the Farm Service Agency and working with UVM Extension, we believe the damage uh, across Vermont is about uh, ten million dollars. Um, so it's significant. Uh, many pick your own operations. Um, have been impacted. Um, there will be uh, there will be apples this fall. There will be opportunities for folks to enjoy orchards and and, and get fresh fruit and 
and all that. But I think it's going to be a little bit different because we don't know the full scale of it yet of what's damaged. But, you know, some orchards are reporting 90 percent damage, um, some 30 percent damage. Um, so we'll see where it lands, but significant damage. And now um, we're seeking some uh, federal aid to see if we can uh, uh, make that whole as well. So we've got a lot of a lot of issues. Now we've got this one on top of this. And, of course, there's going to be millions of dollars in damage to agriculture uh, in the event we've got now. And then we had the one also uh, in May. So I think uh, in the end we're going to have uh, – it's going to look much different uh, this fall than uh, where we're standing right now. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that there will be some uh, level of uh, uh, fruit production um, down from, from a normal year. And I heard a report um, that one of the cider makers is going to import apples uh, to maintain uh, his production of cider. Um, you know, I understand not quite the same as a local product, but, uh, but still uh, uh, serving an important market need. So we'll hope for the best. Um, Mother Nature... Yeah, that's, um yeah, that's going to be an issue of, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and the other thing to keep in mind here, which may help us get aid in the end, this was a regional event. Uh, uh, New York was severely impacted. Uh, we had Connecticut uh, as far as uh, even down into New Jersey, Pennsylvania, all of New England. So as a group, we've gotten together and, you know, uh, we're going to make a plea to Congress that uh, we're going to need some special uh, special appropriation to try to have these businesses uh, uh, try to recover because uh, insurance is not going to cover. If they did have insurance, it's not going to cover all the losses that are uh, at stake here. Well, I guess that's the advantage of a wider spread event because other uh, congressional delegations will be affected too. Yeah. well, Anson, we've talked about the uh, impact of the storm on uh, on our farm community. We've talked about the May weather event. Um, uh, I'd like to talk about something positive. Uh, uh, I guess maple comes close to that. I know we were down a little bit in the production this year, but but still pretty strong from a historical perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, keep in mind, uh, you know, not la- not last season, but the season before was a record year. Uh, and it was an odd year this year. I think um, we had uh, we had some interesting stories where a few miles away a sugar bush may have done really well, and a few miles away they were having they were having difficulties. Um, there's still a lot of maple out there, um, and the industry continues to continues to grow. Vermont is the the national leader. About 50 percent of the maple continues to come from uh, uh, the great state of Vermont. Uh, we did get some uh, support um, in the governor's budget. The governor uh, proposed uh, a program to offer support for maple produce and meat, and we were able to get some funding through the legislature. And we also received some additional uh, dollars to USDA as we try to uh, fix our food system from what happened during the pandemic. So come this fall, I think we'll have some more support to you know, try to make it a little bit more affordable for our, our sugar makers and other producers to uh, work in in Vermont. So those programs will be rolling out uh, as they're developed uh, probably in the fall, um, uh, depending on everyone's schedule right now. So we're we're encouraged by that because there's, there's an opportunity to grow maple even more, uh, but there needs to be some support out there as well. Well, our first... Uh product of the season every year and uh, one for which Vermont's uh, uh, justifiably 
uh, renowned. Uh, it's on our state quarter, after all, and we produce, uh, what, about half the syrup in the United States. So uh, we're proud of our maple sugar producers, and uh, uh, thanks for, uh, for giving them a hand. Um, there are, of course, other uh, products out there. We need to talk about our dairy farmers, and uh, I saw that the, the legislature gave a little money to help organic farmers in particular, I guess. But uh, give us an update on the state of the dairy industry generally. Yeah, it's a, it's it's going through an interesting time uh, right now. We we uh, the price of milk was um, was pretty decent uh, uh, for a while there with the. Um, uh, with the conventional market, and you mentioned the organic uh, uh, was disrupted. There's a program that we have launched that people, the organic dairy, uh, should apply for a, a payment, a direct payment, because of their tremendous losses they've experienced uh, during 2022. So that program is up and running. Uh, and we've also, uh, it, we're seeing some disruption in the cheese market, uh, some disruption in the international markets with dairy. Uh, so the uh, the price is not where it should be right now. We've seen a little bit of lull there. Uh, and, of course, uh, I'm really concerned about um, what's happening now with uh, both on the farm and both in our processing plants with this disruption that we're going to see uh, in Vermont um, with dairy. How that will play out uh, over the next few months, I'm not sure. But we're going to see a significant disruption of, of what's occurring on the farm and in the plant and, of course, Crop damage is really uh, significant. We need good, healthy uh, crops to feed the animals, and if they're fed, if they have good crops, that produces good quality milk. So there's a ripple effect here. Um, hopefully, we can recover. And I know some crops were put in prior to this flood, uh, but we'll see how it all sugars off here in the next uh, few weeks. Well, and of course, if uh, farmers can't grow their own. Uh, feed, then they have to buy it, and that puts more pressure on the on the bottom line. So we'll hope for the best. Anson, let me ask you about uh, farm labor. That uh, is a challenge for every sector in Vermont and, indeed, in a lot of other parts of the country. But are farmers finding enough uh, people to work on the farms, either locally or or by, uh, uh, by visitors? Uh, there's still a tremendous need for uh, farm workers. Um, uh, without a doubt, um, we need people, and uh, and that's one. Of, if, if I talk to dairy farmers, I think um, that may be one of their top concerns right now is uh, reliable uh, labor. Um, you know, sometimes the uh, hours are long and uh, and difficult, and there's so many opportunities for folks to do other things uh, in society today. But um, it can be so rewarding, independence, working outside. Uh, accomplishment of, uh, you know, getting in a good crop, milking a cow. So there's plenty of opportunities. So we're we're trying to develop programs that uh, look to the next generation and offer that for folks. But, uh, you know, we need help, uh, whether it's at the cheese plant or whether it's uh, milking the cows or doing the crops. We continue to need uh, uh, more residents and more people in the state of Vermont. It is hard work. I uh, worked on my in-laws' dairy farm briefly a number of decades ago, and I often joked uh, that's why I switched to a desk job. But um, it, uh, it's there's still an opportunity to go back. I think. <laughs> you know, if, if, if this radio gig doesn't work out, you know, they, you know, 
Okay. I know you. I know you can handle it well. So. I'll keep that in mind. Uh, thank you. Um, we just got a minute or so left, Anson. But let me ask you about the status of the federal farm bill. I can't remember what the oh. cycle is, uh, but where, where, where's that? Yeah, well, this is the this is the year, and uh, it's being uh, written and drafted, and I think it expires in October. And most years, uh, Congress does not make the deadline, so they just extend the current uh, farm bill. It's a five-year plan, so it's a really significant uh, piece of legislation that has everything from nutrition to policy. Uh, there's a lot in the farm bill, um, and so I think uh, it's being uh, it's being uh, it's being written now, and lots of people are weighing in on it, and it's making its way through. Uh, making its way through Congress. We have a seat at the table with Senator Welch. He's a member of the Senate Agriculture Committee. So that's important to the Northeast and in our interest in Vermont. So, yeah, it's working its way through uh, Congress right now. Well, uh, we'll hope that it's uh, favorable. It uh, generally has been, I guess, uh, to the extent that uh, it uh, has benefited us in, in the past uh, rounds. But uh, glad we have a senator at, uh, at the table. Anson, we're just about out of time. Uh, uh, again, want to thank you for coming on on a clearly busy morning, uh, um, given what's going on with the uh, tropical storm, the flooding, uh, the um, the events with which you're dealing, uh, keeping an eye on our dairy farmers, on the entire agricultural sector to try to, I know, stand by and render whatever assistance uh, the state can when uh, when they need it. So uh, best of luck as you uh, work through this uh, very challenging week. Thank you, Governor, and uh, best to everyone out there. Uh, everyone be safe, and uh, please reach out if we can be of any help, no matter the issue. Anson Tebbets, Vermont Secretary of Agriculture. Great to, great to have you on the show. We'll uh, pause for, for news and uh, other updates and then be back after the top of the hour with Russell Flannery from Forbes Media, uh, a Rutlander who spent many, many decades in, uh, uh, in uh, Asia. We'll be right back. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas sitting in today, and uh, thank you, uh, Lee, for the latest update. A uh, little good news, at least. Some roads uh, reopening up in the northern part of the state, but uh, still quite problematic in many areas down south and in central Vermont. So um, uh, follow the advice of emergency officials. Uh, seek higher ground. Don't go in uh, water that is over roads and uh, uh, try to keep yourself and your family as safe as possible. Well, we're joined uh, this uh, uh, for this half hour by a, a great gentleman from Rutland named Russell Flannery. Russell, uh, welcome to the microphones of Radio Vermont. Thanks for having me, uh, Jim. I'm sorry that I can't be up there uh, with you today. 
Well, I guess we should start with uh, uh, the event that we're all experiencing. Uh, I had to take a detour to get to the studios. Uh, uh, it would have been very, very difficult for you. You'd have to have left uh, right after supper last night, I think, to find a, a route. But wh- what's the uh, situation in the Rutland area, as far as you can tell now? Yeah, uh, it's uh, kind of disheartening uh, Pretty mildly to see everything happening in, in Ludlow, just down, you know, a bit on uh, Route 103 and Route 7. Uh, in front of uh, my house here in Rutland, the street is dry and the sun is shining. Well, let's hope uh, that that continues. Uh, the forecast is for some respite that we're experiencing now, but uh, maybe a little more rain later in the week. Probably not as much as we've had, but the ground is saturated. The rivers are full or overflowing, and uh, uh, more rain is not what we need right now, but uh, uh, we'll hope for the best. Well, I invited uh, uh, I invited you on the show, Russell, because uh, you have a great uh, uh, story to, to tell. You're a, a Rutlander, um, MSJ graduate, Uni- University of Vermont alum, uh, who has spent a great deal of your professional life on the other side of the planet. So um, tell us uh, how a, a kid from Rutland ended up in, in China. Yeah, it's... Uh when uh, my mother, uh, who's actually living in Montpelier, uh, uh, tells this story, she says, well, you know, he was always interested in the news uh, because I've, I've been so lucky to be able to do so many um, interesting things. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I, you know, was lucky to grow up in Rutland, uh, surrounded by a really strong family community and full of interesting uh, people. Uh, my dad was a court reporter at the Rutland County Courthouse for for many years, and through him, I, I learned a lot about what was happening in the world, you know, for good and for bad. And as you say, uh, I went to MSJ, had great uh, English language teachers in particular, which gave me a lot of the uh, writing um skills and inspiration that, you know, have kept me going uh, all these decades. Uh, When I was uh, in high school and in junior high school, actually, I got my start in radio, Jim, uh, by helping out uh, sports legend Jack Healy uh, down at WSYB uh, when he was there. And I used to help the news director uh, pull, uh, I think it was AP, wire copy that was coming into the station from around the world and and uh, see the news as it was happening, and that was always very, very interesting to me. So I went up to UVM and uh, was fortunate to have uh, really wonderful economics uh, professors, uh, including Art Wolf, uh, your guest uh, this morning, uh, who I've kept in touch with over the years. Uh, and uh, and I got to know Art a little bit. He was an advisor to our economics department uh, club, uh, where I was an official. Uh, I got interested in uh, agriculture because, of course, uh, growing up in Vermont, uh, it's a big part of our economy. And at the time that I was getting through UVM, uh, China was opening up, and I was thinking about uh, the future and uh, what might be interesting. 
So uh, Art, uh, among others, uh, wrote a letter of recommendation for me to go to grad school at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison, uh, where uh, he got his uh, PhD, and I finished there with a master's degree in uh, ag econ and agricultural economics, uh, Jim. Uh, but more importantly, I crossed paths with the uh, Chinese department where, uh, once again, I really uh, benefited from having remarkably passionate, uh, great teachers that made something that seems to be very uh, <clears throat> complicated to a lot of people, uh, very understandable. Uh, and at that time, I thought my teachers were uh, a little bit too passionate uh, and a little wacky, actually. But um, it was really that passion for, for teaching and for education that made them such wonderful teachers. And uh, I was able to learn uh, Chinese when I was there in uh, Madison. For a while, Jim, I actually uh, uh, studied uh, Japanese, hmm. <clears throat> but I stuck with uh, Chinese uh, after that. So um, you want to jump in? or? No, I was just going to say that. That's, that's a great uh um, uh, account of your educational career. I want to remind our listeners we're chatting with Russell Flannery of Rutland, who's, uh, who's uh, spent a lot of his uh, 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 professional life in China, and I think he's just about to tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, we're getting <laughs> many chapters, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went out to, to Taiwan after grad school, uh, and uh, Taiwan, t Taiwan at that time was a very interesting because of the uh, the uh, the tight relationship with the U.S., but also uh, you could see the the, the entrepreneurial uh, fervor uh, that was uh, taking place back at back then. Taiwan wasn't the world's biggest uh, producer of advanced semiconductors uh, as it is today, but uh, there were a lot of family-owned businesses. And uh, they worked very hard to lift Taiwan from, uh, from poverty. Um, and uh, I looked at that and I thought, you know, China, and mainland China with a much larger population, is trying to reform itself. And uh, thought, gee, you know, my, my theory when I was in grad school um, about Asia having a good future uh, uh, seems to be validated uh, here. Uh, Taiwan also, uh, just like uh, MSJ in its own way, uh, is full of passion for education, uh, and uh, I really got a lot out of that um, experience of being in Taiwan. So, uh, by the by, uh, I uh, opened up Bloomberg's bureau, uh, first bureau in uh, Taiwan. Uh, I went to China from Bloomberg. I came back to Taiwan and worked for the Asia edition of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and uh, fast, for, fast forward, uh, following many great articles and the chance to interview many, many fascinating uh, people, um, I uh, joined Forbes in 2001 and in 2003, I opened the first ever mainland China bureau for Forbes. Well, and, uh, and now, of course, it's called Forbes Media, so it's it's not just the magazine, right? You have a lot of uh, online news as well. 
Yeah, we uh, <clears throat> we uh, have changed with technology. Um, very interesting, of course, how um, the media interface with uh, the public changes so much, uh, over, has changed so much over time. Uh, but uh, Forbes uh, continues to have a, have a big uh, welcome uh, globally. I think in part that's because of the uh, inspirational uh, approach that we take uh, to a lot of our reporting, uh, helping people learn how to, how to start a business, how to succeed in business, how to succeed in life. Um, we have, uh, Jim, uh, interestingly, more than 40 um, overseas editions uh, globally. Um, and uh, from that huge number, uh, you can see that the kind of uh, journalism and the kind of reporting uh, that we are doing uh, resonates around the world, I think, uh, with people uh, that, are, that are trying to be successful, like I say, try to be successful in life, uh, trying to build a big business, and trying to help their own economies uh, do do better. And every edition of Forbes magazine, to which I might add I subscribe, uh, has a, a highlight from each of those 40 international uh, editions, which is really fascinating to see the breadth of uh, business activity around the globe. We're chatting with uh, Russell Flannery of Rutland uh, about uh, his uh, experience uh, growing up in Rutland, going off to Asia and becoming a, uh, uh, a reporter and editor in, uh, in various business publications. And Russell, I think we ought to dive right into uh, a discussion of what's going on on the other side of the globe. Uh, there have been reports recently that the Chinese economy that's been going gangbusters for some time is softening a little bit, uh, but uh, obviously the pandemic didn't help. Um, but what's, what's your take on, on how it's doing uh, economically now? Yeah, uh, that's a really important question for us here because uh, China uh, is such an important uh, export market uh, for the U.S., um, I think uh, that uh, last year uh, the, the response by China to COVID uh, turned uh, a little bit overdone. Uh, the lockdown, um, which means people having to stay at home uh, for extended periods of time, uh, really uh, were quite a shock uh, to the public. And um, uh, this year, uh, another another disruption uh, for China and the whole global economy is the uh, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, um, which has really disrupted, uh, interestingly, uh, flights uh, between the U.S. and China. I saw a number the other day that the number of flights, direct flights from the U.S. to China, um, is down from a few hundred per month, I want to say. That, that number may not be right, but down to a couple of dozen. So uh, China's uh, inbound tourism industry has taken a hit. Uh, China's uh, foreign direct investment has taken a hit. Uh, consumer spending um, is not uh, rebounding as much as optimists hope. And... Uh, uh, and as we all know, the uh, geopolitical uh, tension between China and uh, some of its neighbors and uh, the U.S. Uh, has been uh, pretty uh, acute 
this year. Well, it certainly uh, did seem to um, slow down. Uh, I, I, I suppose tourists aren't going to be as likely to to want to go if they see a, a, a serious um, um, pandemic situation, a likelihood of of becoming ill. Uh, so that's going to uh, obviously have an impact. But uh, as you s- suggested, Russell, it's an important market for the United States, a large trading partner, um, and and even little old Vermont. Um, uh, I first met you when I was on a trade mission with some Vermont businesses seeking to uh, expand opportunities um, uh, for investment in, in and by China. Um, so what, what possibilities are there, do you think, for the Green Mountain State? Yeah, I think um, one way to, to look at this question is not only to focus on China, is just to think about Asia um, as a whole. Because um, when we were, we were just talking about the economic growth outlook in Vermont and how we're constrained uh, by the labor supply and how we're increasing our taxes here, which is going to make the state less attractive to businesses. Um, where is growth uh, in the world, and uh, where can uh, we in Vermont hope to get uh, to get more customers for whether it's our services or whether it's our products? And uh, uh, the fact is that Asia uh, currently, as far as way as it seems to us uh, here in Vermont, uh, is very important to the global economy. Um, it's either the uh, Asian Development Bank or the IMF is predicting that Asia's GDP growth this year will be 4.6%. Um, China, the world's number two economy, is going to have GDP growth this year of, uh, of forecast 5%. Uh, India, now uh, one of the five largest uh, economies in the world and home to the world's uh, biggest uh, population, is going to be growing 5.5%. So even though we're far, far from Asia, and even though culturally we don't have a, a, a huge Asian-American population, uh, we really ought to be thinking um, at the policy level, and I think even at the education level, how can we connect better uh, with that fast-growing uh, part of the world? And then to come directly to your question, Jim, about some of the things that we might try to do uh, to to attract some some uh, some spending uh, from that part of the world, I think tourism is a big one. You know, we still uh, here in Vermont have some of the world's most beautiful uh, tourist uh, assets. Um, I think we uniquely have carved out uh, a great reputation in renewable energy. And to the extent that we can put some of this policy generosity that uh, you've alluded to uh, with uh, companies uh, in Asia that are world leaders in the renewable business, uh, that would create uh, jobs uh, in industries that are quite well matched uh, with us here. Um, I think that... um, because of rising incomes um, all across Asia, including China, uh, there's a great demand for, for homes overseas, for real estate property. So it seems to me that um, uh, there are uh, there's a conversation to be had between that group of people in Asia that are looking to get another home. 
uh, with uh, with uh, the uh, real estate industry here in Vermont. Uh, UVM uh, has attracted a large number of uh, Asian uh, students um, over time, and I think that that uh, is also something that benefits our education industry um, here. Well, it certainly does, Russell. And um, I saw a report that the number of Chinese students studying abroad has declined, perhaps because of the pandemic, perhaps because of the political stress to which you mentioned. But uh, they certainly enrich our communities and our, our student bodies, so I hope that will rebound. We've got um, time flies. We've got just a few minutes left. But one thing that I've never completely understood, and perhaps you can explain it to me and our listeners, is um, is uh, private ownership of uh, property in uh, in China. I mean, we, we think of it as a largely socialist entity uh, with the state playing a very important role. But but there are a lot of people. Uh, and I think you've just alluded to this who who own their own homes, own businesses. So, so how, how has that evolved in in the recent past? Uh, that's a that's a very timely uh, question. In 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 fact, uh, Jim, because um, uh, when I when I first went out to Asia in the 1980s, just about everything in China was government or uh, collective um, ownership. Um, and that has changed in a big way. About, uh, about 60% of GDP in China today comes from private sector, and about 90% of jobs actually come from the private sector. So there are a huge number of uh, private sector companies in China uh, that have been uh, vital to uh, to the, the remarkable growth that's happened there. And uh, those are the kind of companies that are, in my own opinion, uh, in industries that are doing uh, important things that matter to us every day, whether it's in solar panel, whether it's in it's solar panels, whether it's in wind turbines, um, all kinds of um, green energy-related fields, for instance, uh, that uh, we have in Vermont, and if we could think about how to attract uh, investment in plants, um, assembly, that kind of thing, that would bring more of the value added from those projects, uh, from those products uh, to us here, then uh, it would help um, with our economic base um, and help the kind of growth that uh, Art Wolf was just talking about uh, that we really need in order to to be able to sustain uh, the increases in uh, spending that have been happening at the state government level. And, uh, Russell, you mentioned uh, the fact that India is now larger in terms of total population. Uh, we've just got a minute left, but uh, w- what about the uh, demographic trend in China? The one-child policy perhaps uh, seemed like a good idea at the time, but... But um, an, an aging population, uh, what's that looking like? Uh, it's, 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 it's quite interesting how not only in China but in Korea uh, and uh, Japan, uh, there's a real kind of demographic uh, time bomb uh, there, and um, um, it will slow their growth uh, down uh, from the years when the population in those countries I was more skewed toward uh, younger people. Um, India, on the other hand, has more younger people. And I think, um, um, as we know, uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, was just in Washington, 
and uh, looking to promote uh, ties between the U.S. and uh, India. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a great moment to be thinking about uh, even that country, even though, as and I Russia- say, even in Vermont, we just don't have these kind of bonds, but we should be thinking more about them. We're going to have to leave it at that, Russell. We're out of time, but thank you, Russell Flannery, for joining us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas uh, sitting in today, and we're uh, honored to be joined uh, during this half hour by Owen Foster, the chairman of the Green Mountain Care Board. I was going to say new, uh, but uh, it's been a little while now, Owen, right? I can't remember when exactly you began your stewardship there, but uh, you're into it uh, heavily now, that's for sure, and I'm delighted that you're able to take some time and uh, come into the studios of WDEV this morning. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Governor. It's really nice to be here and a real honor to to be interviewed, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Well, uh, we've been talking about the flood, of course, um, uh, quite a lot this morning. And um, uh, downtown Montpelier, we just heard the city manager say, is going to be closed until 3 p.m. now at the earliest. But the offices of the Green Mountain Care Board are right on State Street, and and we're affected by this flooding, right? We are submerged, like many others. Um, So no one went to the office yesterday. Uh, They put some sandbags around it, and we tried to get the electronics up high. Um, I saw some videos, and the, the water is up above the uh, bay windows, so it's it's in there. Well, uh, I'm having a sense of deja vu, not from the um, uh, Irene event a dozen years ago, but from 1992 when I worked in Montpelier and the downtown was flooded and um, the entire uh, State Street area, including the building that your office is in now, were was underwater and for a long time the Capitol Plaza Hotel kept the uh, list of the daily events for the day of the flood. I don't think they still do but March something of 1992. So 1927 the water got to 27 feet um, by the bridge and I heard yesterday it was 21 feet and potentially still climbing of course the, the dam goes we'll have a real problem so we were thinking about everyone out there. Yeah, and I, again, I uh, want to reiterate to our listeners, uh, follow the advice of local officials, get to higher ground, don't go through water that's over a road, um, because uh, you referred to the 1927 flood, the lieutenant governor was washed away uh, in Barrie, and uh, um, among roughly 85 or so fatalities uh, oh, that wow. year. Anyway, we're here to talk about health care, and uh, uh, we hope that uh, people don't need much as a result of this episode this week. But um, the Green Mountain Care Board is fairly new, right? It's, what, five, six, eight years old? I can't remember. Ten. Um, oh. I believe it came into existence the year after you left office. It was 20 or, yeah, no, 2011, so a little more than 10, I think. It's 2011. Oh, oh older yeah. than I thought. Okay. What, what, give our listeners a sense of what it is what it does. Sure. So the Green Mountain Care Board was created initially with the intent of um, furthering the single-payer effort. So Governor Shumlin came in and was trying to create a single-payer uh, system to provide coverage for all. It didn't work out, and the Care Board has a number of authorities to regulate the healthcare industry. Um, I'll give you a sense of what that includes because it's not the entire spectrum. We have no input on Medicare rates or Medicaid rates, um, but we do make decisions on commercial rates. So right now, currently, we have pending um, applications from the insurance companies seeking rate increases. So whenever people get a rate increase in Vermont for particular plans, the Green Mountain Care Board makes those decisions. 
Um, we also regulate the hospital budgets. So hospitals come before the board in the summer. Um, they just submitted their requests June 30th, and they'll ask to increase their net patient revenue, the total amount of revenue they can make from patient services. And then they'll have another request for a commercial rate increase that they want to be able to charge the insurance companies. So we regulate the hospitals, um, the insurance companies, although not all plans, and then the accountable care organizations. Um, and we have two currently in Vermont, one larger one and one Medicare-only one. Um, and just for your listeners, so they have the background, Medicare is the federal payer for, for the elderly. Medicaid is a combination of state and federal money um, that is covers people who are in more financial need. And then you have commercial insurance, which a lot of people get through their employer. Or in Vermont, you can get through Vermont Health Connect on, on the exchange. You get an exchange plan. And the board is comprised of five members. Uh, you're full-time. The others are part-time, right? Correct. Yep. Uh, one chair, uh, four um, other board members who are 32 hours a week. But the truth is I think they all probably work more 45-plus. It's, it's a pretty intense job. And then we have a really dedicated and talented staff. That's really impressive. Uh, I think it's 27 staff members. So we have different disciplines. We have um, a data and analytics team that is just incredible at analyzing and assessing really rich data sets on healthcare claims to see what's going on with expenses, what kind of claims are coming in, and where those claims are being paid and to whom. And then they also have, um, we also have a legal team, we have a health policy team, and we have a hospital finance team. We're chatting with Owen Foster, the chairman of the Green Mountain Care Board, about uh, health care in Vermont. And and um, everybody gets these bills, Owen, and, uh, you know, is startled, I suppose, until unless the insurance company steps in and helps. But talk a little about the cost of health care in Vermont, what the trends have been, and what we might anticipate. Yeah, the trends have not been um, where we want them to be. Um, so the challenge in Vermont right now in our healthcare system, as I see it, is sort of threefold. One, we have 14 hospitals in Vermont, which is a real blessing to have those because you have better access. You can get to the hospital quickly if you, God forbid, need to. Um, but the hospital's finances are really poor right now. Um, we look at two main data points, days cash on hand and operating margin. And both of those... Uh, indicators have really, really plummeted over the last three years to the point where nine out of our 14 hospitals actually had negative operating margins last year. So that means they're actually losing money on the services they provide. So that's one thing. We have problems with hospitals being financially solvent and sustainable. Um, we had a bankruptcy, I guess it was probably three years ago now or so, Springfield Hospital. So that's one side of it. Then you have non-hospital providers, mental health long-term care, hospice, um, independent practices, primary care practices. Those are also financially really, really struggling. Um, some are closing more than we want because they're not replaced. And at the same time, Vermonters are getting uh, larger and larger premium requests and bills from their insurance company. So we're paying more, and the people to whom we're paying are struggling financially. That's that's the challenge. Well, I wonder if it's uh, the economy of scale. We, we, we see it in our schools. We see it in our correctional facilities. Um, and maybe we see it in healthcare care, too. We're, we're a small state. I think that's true. I mean, when you have 14 hospitals or some operating in really small rural communities, which is a blessing, but the volume of services and patients that go through the doors aren't that huge. There's also macro issues that we're seeing across the country. You're seeing rural hospitals 
closures just across the country. Rural hospitals are really struggling nationwide, um, and Vermont has not been immune to that. And we've had some closures um, in the recent past. Um, I suppose that pressure is going to continue. Uh, obviously, hospitals are trying to do more on an outpatient basis. Uh, no, the, the joke is nobody stays in a hospital anymore. <laughs> um, obviously, some do. Um, but what, what's what's the trend? Are, are they sustainable, do you think? Um, the state has put in a lot of money and effort to ensure their stability. Um, so in terms of finances, we have seen some increases in reimbursement rates from, from federal payers and state payers. And we've seen the large commercial rate increases over the last several years. And I pulled a couple data points for you. Um, the qualified health plans, the plans you get on the exchange from 2018 to 2024 – depending on the plan, have gone up between 47.9 to 82.6%. That's an increase in how much everyone's paying. So there's been a lot more money added to the hospitals, in part, to ensure their stability. Um, and the amount of money that's come out to over the last uh, five years is $600 million more um, in investment in the hospitals. Um, so that's one thing. We have put in a lot more money to try and solve for some of these problems. Um, the other thing we're doing right now is we have Act 167 passed last summer, and that has um, a hospital sustainability component. There's going to be community engagement this fall where we have um, uh, a third-party consultant who is an expert in this who will be speaking with local communities to find out the gaps in care, the kind of care they can't get that they need, and to try and fill those gaps and also look at any redundancy or things that are underutilized, right? So if you go on I-89 – you can get to a number of hospitals pretty quickly. And so they're looking at, can we have centers of excellence? Can we have opportunities to lower some of that infrastructure cost while maintaining the hospitals? And what do you think is driving the cost increases of that order of magnitude? Um, it's multifaceted. Uh, there's certainly macro trends in the country. Inflation itself is a big driver. Medical inflation historically is considerably higher than ordinary inflation. So there's that. Um, the workforce challenges that hospitals are having is, is, is real. Um, I don't have the number in front of me, but I know it's in the $100 million range of what UVM Medical Center had to pay for travelers over the last couple of years. That's a huge, huge, huge burden. And part of the driver of these huge cost increase is Medicare and Medicaid um, you know, are fairly static in what they pay. And in Vermont, we only have a limited number of people on commercial insurance. We're a state of 650,000 people. Commercial insurance is about a third of that. So when there needs to be increases or if there are increases, it's borne by a dwindling population. And so it's a little bit disproportionate given the scale, like you said. What we call the cost shift, um, clearly. I suppose drugs might be a factor, too. They've gone up quite uh, rapidly, maybe technology, but... Everything just adds up to those statistics that you uh, you cited. Those are big drivers. Pharmaceutical costs have not abated. Those are not going down. That's a big driver. Um, the electronic medical records are exceedingly expensive, um, and the facilities are expensive. So, We're chatting with Owen Foster, the chairman of the Green Mountain Care Board, the state regulatory entity that uh, reviews and approves hospital budgets and insurance premiums. Um, and, uh, and one other item I was going to ask you about, Owen, that's uh, the – Certificate of Need process, something that many states, most states don't have. But tell us uh, what that is and, and how you play a role. Right. 
So um, if a healthcare provider entity wants to um, invest in its infrastructure, build a new building, add a new wing, maybe even purchase a new MRI machine, they have to submit what's called a certificate of need to the Green Mountain Care Board. And we review it, we ask questions, and then we have to approve it. So the five board members will vote, and three votes carries. So if three members vote yes, then the certificate of need will be granted, and whatever it was they applied for can be built. Um, they can vary in size and scope. Um, they can be as simple as a MRI machine or something like that, um, or they can be uh, – UVM has one now. I think it's a $140 million-ish outpatient surgical center, so they can be quite large. The Green Mountain Surgery Center over in Colchester, um, that's another example of one. Um, so, yeah, and just to give you a sense, we did seven last year. We approved seven certificates of need. All seven that were applied for were granted, and the total dollar value was $49 million. Um, but they can they can vary. Uh, you began our discussion by explaining that the board was created a dozen years ago um, to um, respond to the interest in a single-payer government-run health care scheme that's kind of gone by the board. But we do have things called accountable care organizations, and uh, the board plays a role in those. Could you explain what they are and what they're doing in Vermont? Yeah, right. So um, after single-payer didn't uh, come to fruition, uh, Vermont ultimately moved in the direction of what's called the all-payer model agreement. And the all-payer model agreement um, is a, a way for us to pay for health care differently. Rather than just straight fee-for-service, um, it provides an opportunity to pay by value-based care, right? And the idea is that you want providers to be able to provide more preventative care as opposed to being stuck trying to, you know, provide care that costs more and gives them more margin for their own financial stability, um, and an accountable care organization is sort of a key component of the all-payer model. It's an organizing entity that uh, has contracts with payers and with providers so that you can make those kinds of payments, value-based, population-based payments. And you mentioned we have two in Vermont. Is that right? We have two currently, um, one large one called um, One Care Vermont, um, they had about 300,000 attributable lives. That's how many lives were covered. And I won't get into the weeds of how you determine if you're covered or not by the ACO. But most hospitals participate, um, and all three payers, uh, commercial and uh, Medicare and Medicaid, were participating. And then Blue Cross withdrew last December um, from, from its contract with OneCare. Um, and then we have a smaller one that's Medicare only that just came online, I think, last year. You mentioned uh, the workforce challenge earlier um, in terms of the traveling nurses and how expensive they are, frankly, relative to full-time staff. What, what about the healthcare workforce? Are, are we in a real crisis there? We are, although I'd say it isn't necessarily anything new. If you look back at reports on our healthcare industry in the 70s and 80s, we've had nursing shortages kind of throughout. Um, it's particularly acute right now, and it's really causing uh, a lot of pain. Um, so, yes, it's, it, is, it is serious. We also have physician recruitment challenges. Um, it's not just nurses. It's, it's both. Um, hospitals are having a really hard time recruiting and retaining physicians. And at the independent practice level, you're seeing massive amounts of burnout, right? So if you're an independent doctor, you're caring for your patients. And then beyond that, you have to run a business, and it's extremely regulated, and there's 
expenses with having your EMR, with dealing with all the reporting requirements. And clinicians, we're seeing more and more burnout. We're seeing that in our physician surveys, and they're leaving the workforce. EMR, electronic medical record, and that leads to another question, uh, and that is the greater use of technology, uh, telehealth, Mm -hmm. uh, so-called. Is that playing a greater role? It is, yeah, particularly during COVID. Um, Vermont was pretty progressive and ahead of the curve. Um, uh, Representative Lori Houghton did a really great job with having some bills ready that address that. So we do have greater access to telehealth than we did three years ago, five years ago. Um, That allows us to provide care to patients that are in rural communities or like a day like today. People might need to see their doctor and they can't get there. Um, So we have seen a greater increase in that. Uh, I guess this is related to the workforce challenge. Uh, I've heard from a number of people lately who say, I need a primary care doc and I can't find one. Uh, Is primary care a particular area of concern? It it really is. Um, And I'll tell you a personal anecdote. So I tried to get a doctor here. I've Grew up here in Middlebury and moved back after school and some work um, eight eight years ago now, 2014. I tried to get a primary care doctor. When I moved here, I couldn't get one. Um, I gave up. I'm fortunate to be pretty healthy. When I became the chair of the care board, I kept hearing about the problem getting primary care providers, and so I said I should really try. And so I called eight different places um, within my first month, and I never even got on a wait list. I could not get a primary care doctor. Um Earlier this spring, I, like many Vermonters, got a tick bite, and I texted a friend who's a nurse and said, can you go to the front desk and find an opening and get me in? And fortunately, she did, and so I do now have one, but a lot of people can't get it. So if you're a Vermonter and you pay all this money in insurance and you're not even able to get a primary care provider, it's really frustrating. Certainly is. I chatted with a recent graduate of Middlebury, a young fellow who fortunately is staying in Vermont, but uh, he's struggling with that challenge uh, among other issues like housing. But uh, that's a topic for another discussion. <laughs> well, time flies, uh, um, uh, Owen, and we, we've uh, just about run out of time here, but um, I hope we'll have a chance to chat again. The Green Mountain Care Board playing such an important role in Vermont's health care future and uh, and um, uh, the cost and access and quality of health care continuing to be a real challenge for the people of the Green Mountain State. So thanks and good luck with the work of the board. That'll do it for uh, Vermont Viewpoint today. Uh, we've got a special uh, presentation uh, with uh, Governor Scott coming up and then uh, Common Sense Radio following that with Bill Sayre. Uh, we'll uh, talk to you Thursday when I'll be back at this microphone with another round of great guests on this important show. So hope to chat with you then. Take care. <laughs>